Chapter 95 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We're ducking Cupid's arrows this week as we celebrate Valentine's Day with a couple of books about, you guessed it, love. First up, best-selling author Jill Santopolo stops by to talk about her new novel, which will give you all the feels. Then Christopher Castellani puts his spin on the 15-year romance between a New Jersey truck driver and award-winning playwright Tennessee Williams. I could simply describe the new book from bestseller Jill Santopolo as a love story, but that wouldn't really do it justice because it's a love's story, exploring all kinds of love, like the love between parents and children, the love of a best friend, or the take-your-breath-away kind of love. I recently spoke with her about More Than Words, which had me reaching for the box of tissues more than once. You know, I think in my first book also, The Light We Lost, I explored the different kinds of love that are in a person's life. And I did sort of have that in the back of my head that I wanted a continuation of that in More Than Words. Um, Because I think love is one of the most wonderful and potentially complicated parts of being a human being. And I think there's just so much to explore about it. And, um, and I had, I had a really fun time just kind of writing about love between friends and love between family members and love between romantic partners and, and sort of how those are all different, but how they're all really affecting and really important. I think there's also a little bit of love for New York City woven into this book as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I love New York City. I um, I grew up just outside of the city, like 15 minutes east of Kennedy Airport. And every chance I got, I begged my parents and my grandparents to take me into Manhattan. And then I moved here for college and, and haven't left. It's been it's been almost 20 years. And I I love it just as much as I did when I first came here when I was like five. Now, you dedicate the book to your dad, who you lost a few years ago. Was writing about grief, as you do in this book, cathartic, or was it painful? Um, a little bit of each. You know, I right when my dad passed away, which was about uh, four years ago now, one of his friends had come up to me and, and said to me, I bet you're going to write about this one day. And I was so mad. I was like, how could you say that to me in the middle of all of this? I'm not going to write about this. I'm never going to write about this. This is so painful. This is this is probably the most painful thing that has happened ever in my life so far. And then after I finished writing The Light We Lost and I was sort of trying to come up with the new book that I was going to write, no matter what idea I had, the father in the book always died. And I figured, well, I guess, I guess that's what I'm going to write about. Um, and there were definitely scenes that were hard for me to write, but I think, and I hope that what it it does is get the emotions of what it really feels like to be grieving a father on the page, and that if there are other people out there who've lost their dad, or or maybe you know another parent or, or someone important to them, um, that when they read this book, they'll kind of feel not quite as alone. They'll feel like there are other people in the world who are experiencing that and, and there's kind of a community there. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest book to write for that reason, but, but it felt 
it felt right to write. I'm one of those readers who fall into that camp. I lost my dad about 19 years ago. And reading your book, just it, it brought back, was like, that's exactly how I was feeling. You turned it into words. That means so much to me. Thank you for telling me that. Tell me why you chose to reference the poem, The Jabberwocky, throughout the book. So my grandmother was named after the Jabberwocky poem. Her name isn't wasn't Jabberwocky. That would have been <laughs> that would have been maybe a bit much. But um, her name was Mildred. But her parents called her Mimsy because the beginning of the Jabberwocky poem is. Um, let's see if I can do this. Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All Mimsy were the burrow groves and the momraths outgrabe. So her father loved that poem, and because of that, her nickname for her whole life was Mimsy. Um, so I knew the poem growing up. I, you know, I grew up with it. And I had always imagined that the narrative of the poem was about this boy who was sent out on this quest to you know, kill the Jabberwocky. And then he was only sort of loved when he had accomplished it and had come back home. And I had wanted Nina's father to really feel connected to a poem and for that to kind of make the spine of this book. And that poem just kind of was in the back of my head. And, and that interpretation of that poem was in the back of my head. And I thought, that's actually something that would really resonate with the character that I created, someone who felt like he needed to achieve and needed to accomplish all of these goals before his, his own father would, um, would sort of feel proud of him. And I thought, well, if that's who this person is, how would he parent and what would he do and what would his daughter feel and how would he sort of be shaped by that belief but also rebel against that belief? So um, the Jabberwocky just felt like the right thing to stick in there. And it works. We find Nina sort of at a crossroads after her father's death. She's torn between these two men who are bring out complete opposite facets of her personality. She's not sure what she wants to do anymore because of things that she's learned about her father. Without giving anything away, did you always know where Nina's story would end? I always knew that it would, that she would find out things and, and secrets that her father had been keeping from her and that she would, she would change from it, that she would make different decisions than she would have at the beginning of the book. And I wasn't exactly sure how or what those decisions would, were be, would be. And I wasn't even sure what the secrets would be that she found out. Um, but I knew that she would start out one way and she would find out information that would kind of totally flip the way she thought about her father and the world and her future and what she wanted to do with her life. So what do you hope readers take away from her story? I hope, I hope they take away from it that you can love people who are flawed and that it's okay to still love them, even if they disappoint you sometimes. And also that you only get one chance to live your life. So all of the decisions that you make, um, you know, are, are important and, and shape the way you exist in the world and what you leave behind when you're gone. 
Sort of the idea that life's too short to not be your true self, right? Absolutely. That's that's a much more concise way of saying it, yes. <laughs> so the new book is More Than Words. Jill Santopolo, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about this wonderful new book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What kind of effect do the people we love have on the work that we do? That's one of the themes Christopher Castellani dives into in his new novel, Leading Men. At the heart of the story is the real-life relationship between Tennessee Williams and his lover, Frank Merlo, a truck driver from New Jersey. He recently told me what first drew him to their story. I was a fan of Williams, not a rabid fan, but I was a fan of his. And I was reading, I just came upon a kind of tell-all memoir back in the late 90s. Uh, and I was p- just paging through it, and I came upon the scene of Frank, um, who was dying of cancer um, in a hospital at the end of their relationship, and waiting for for Tennessee to come visit him. And um, they were estranged at the time, and he was waiting for him to visit him, and he, Tennessee wasn't coming. And it was a sort of really tragic moment that that drew me in, and I thought, who were you know who was this guy, and um, how did this truck driver from New Jersey end up with you know the greatest playwright of the 20th century, and what was the nature of their relationship? And that was really what drew me to find out more about him and 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 about Williams himself. Was Merlo Williams' muse, or was their relationship a whole lot more than that? You know, it's interesting. Um, people have asked me that. I, I think Williams had many, many muses. Many, most of them were women. As his sister, most of all, was, I think, someone that, you know, we all know someone that he wrote a lot about his, and his family and many women. Frank was not so much a muse. Um, I mean, Williams described it as that Frank held him down to earth. Um, Frank was the one who took care of everything. He made all the, the uh, travel arrangements. He dealt with their clothes, their pills. He talked Williams down when he was you know, neurotic and, and, and feeling miserable and humiliated and embarrassed by plays that didn't go well. And so he was kind of, for lack of a better word, or to use a cliche, he was the rock. And, um, and Williams desperately needed that kind of stability and that loyalty in his life in order to make his art. Um, he, he did, Williams did um, create a character named Al, Alvaro Manja Cavallo in the, in, in the play The Rose Tattoo that was based on Frank. But in that way, he was amused. But for the most part, he was the rock. And there's nothing wrong with being a rock. I mean, exactly. He, 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 uh, <laughs> Williams ended up writing A Streetcar Named Desire, A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof during this 15 year relationship with Frank. Uh, it was the, towards the end of the t- towards the end of Streetcar when he met um, when he met Frank. Um, and they met in Provincetown in the in the late 40s, um, uh, 1947. They had one night together. And then they didn't see each other for a year. Um, they ran into each other again on the street on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. And they walked past each other. They recognized each other from somewhere. Um, and then they started talking. And then they were together for 14, 15 more years after that. But yeah, it was during that time, that middle time, after Streetcar, Cat on Hudson Roof, Suddenly Last Summer, Sweet Bird of Youth, um, those that kind of really exciting um sort of the heart of williams's career um was when they worked together and this is the important part after frank died in 1963 williams never had another hit um his, he wrote for 20 more years he couldn't get it back he couldn't get the magic back um and i have to think there's something about their relationship that uh you know that was the reason for that 
I know that you did a lot of research leading up to writing this book. Tell me more about these missing two weeks you found in William's diary. <laughs> sure. So um, he kept, you know, he he was terrible with dates and with, um, you know, with even places, <laughs> which is, again, something that Frank helped him with is he helped organize everything. So um, but so even though he was terrible with dates, he kept journals constantly and wrote constant letters. Williams did. And um, but in the late in late July of 1953, there's a missing there's missing two weeks, and right before that time, he I know from a different letter that he got an invitation from Truman Capote to to come to Portofino and um, spend some time with him and visit him there, and so I thought, hmm, what if in those two weeks he he accepted that invitation and um, and went and visit and went to went to Truman's who had parties all the time and brought Frank, they were living in Rome at the time, what might have happened? Who might he have met there? And how can I kind of write about their relationship, set it in these two in this two weeks time, do it in a way that illuminates the entire trajectory of their relationship, like kind of condense it into two weeks and fictionalize it in a way that actually shows you more about them than you would get from a biography, let's say, um, of that time. So that that's how I ended up. Um, and there's no evidence that he didn't, that they didn't go to that, to that party or to that, you know, to, to, you know, to visit Truman in Portofino. There's no evidence that they did and there's no evidence that they didn't. So I wanted to write in the cracks of history there. You've written this kind of alternative history fiction before. Are you ever worried you might go too far in stretching the truth? <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, I'm actually not because, um, because I really am very, I'm almost obsessively faithful to um, to what to what could have been and what I, I, there's. I worked at very very hard to make sure that I didn't put them in places that they couldn't have been. That I didn't make up things just for the sake of convenience. That everything that is in the book is 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 possible. Um, and and I and I truly believe actually that the more that you stretch the truth in terms of like, um, you know, inter- like stretch the truth within those confines. So, you know, you're stretching it to the point right before it breaks, which is what I was wanting to do. The more you do that, actually, the more clearly you can see the truth itself. And I think that's what great science fiction does. Um, that's what great alternative history fiction does, um, historical fiction, um, all of that. We, when we read that stuff, we think we're reading this other thing, but really we're reading about you know, ourselves and, and, and about, you know, that sort of truth that's underneath all of that. And it must be exciting for you as a writer to be able to, you know, flex your creativity in that way. Absolutely. And, you know, I created, you know, in addition to Williams and Merlot, there's a whole other character in this book that is completely fictionalized. And I've inserted her into their lives um, and kind of you know, add, add her and stir, you know, see, <laughs> see, see, to see what would happen. And um, if, if they had a relationship with this fictional person. And again, I did that not just for fun, but because I thought, again, only through this kind of act of imagination um, could we kind of see the truth better. Um, so. And if it wasn't enough that you wrote this novel, there's also a play that you wrote in William's voice, which appears in the book. What was that like? <laughs> that was by far the scariest moment. I bet. <laughs> when I made that decision. <laughs> and luckily, the cover is that. So it's a one-act play for any readers out there like, oh, God, I don't want to read a novel with a 
play in the middle of it. Uh, but it's a short one-act play written by, quote-unquote, Williams, but it's really me. Um, one of those late plays, those post-Frank plays that didn't work, you know. And the only way, the only way that I had, the only way I could allow myself uh, I, that I had the bravery, I should say, to write a play in, in the voice of Tennessee Williams is that it was going to be a bad play. <laughs> and and, uh, and so uh, it's a, it, it, is, it is by my own and by everyone in the novel's admission, a play that does not work. And I thought, you know what? I can write a bad Tennessee Williams play. I can't write a good Tennessee Williams play, but I can probably write a bad Tennessee Williams play. So that's what I did. So I'm going to guess that you're going to stick to novels going forward. You won't see me on Broadway anytime soon. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so what do you have coming up next? Um, you know, another another novel, very different in subject matter, but similar in the sense that it's based in part on um, on a real series of events. Um, I don't want to say too much, but a but a more kind of a dark, like not not. It's a series of deaths and disappearances that are suspicious uh, that I've been really interested in for many years. And um, so I'm thinking about how to tell that story uh, through fiction. Um, And I don't have have absolutely no idea how I'm going to do it, but um, that's the fun part. So I know we had to wait a while for leading men. Will we have to wait a long while for that one? Probably. (laughs) I'm a very slow writer. Yeah, I'm a very slow writer. I like to immerse myself in things and and really live with them for for a bit of time so I can really, you know, kind of almost like, you know, consume them, like take them into me. And um, and so it may be a few. It'll certainly be three or four years at least. Is the Um, method approach to writing? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully I won't disappear. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we hope not either. <laughs> so so yeah. the new book is Leading Men, Christopher Castellani. Thanks so much for spending some time to tell us all about it. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Here's hoping you get to spend Valentine's Day with the one you love, or at least a really, really good book. Next time, we explore the philosophy of digital minimalism. But until we do, and I'm fully aware of the irony, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books or email us at books at intercom.com.